so here's what we have here, right? What the fundamental fantasy does is it tells us what we desire. So need, demand, desire. So Lacan formulates this dialectic where you go from need to desire. Okay, so there's this famous sentence from the Acree. It's in a, the paper called The Signification of the Phallus. And Lacan says, this is why desire is neither the appetite for satisfaction, need, nor the demand for love, demand, but the difference that results from the subtraction of the first, need, from the second, demand, the very phenomenon of their splitting. Okay, so Zizek has, a, he, he talks about this in pretty clear terms in Looking Awry. So Zizek says, the Lacanian distinction between need, demand, and desire, i.e. the way an everyday object destined to satisfy some of our needs, undergoes a kind of transubstantiation as soon as it is caught in the dialectic of demand and ends up producing desire. When we demand an object from somebody, its use value, the fact that it serves to satisfy some of our needs, EO ipso becomes a form of expression of its exchange value. The object in question functions as an index of a network of intersubjective relations. I'm realizing this isn't as clear as I thought it was, but I'll break it down. He, he continues, if the other complies with our wish, he thereby bears witness to a certain attitude towards us. The final purpose of our demand for an object is thus not the satisfaction of a need attached to it, but confirmation of the other's attitude towards us. When, for example, the mother gives milk to her child, the milk becomes a token of her love. So, okay, here's what's going on. The baby has basic biological needs. It has to eat in order to stay alive. But what happens is once the child starts demanding food, at first it's through the cry, but once it has language, it can start to articulate the demand. I want this. Give mm. me this, right? What happens is that the demand enters the need, the, the biological impulse, into this whole other register. At first, it's merely about the use value. I just need, you know, in the case of hunger, I just need the sustenance of the food so I can live. But once right. it enters language and the kid starts demanding food, now it's demanding certain types of food. And the example I gave you not too long ago is, and, you know, uh, it's a cute little example. Like, you imagine a little kid. little kid wants a snack. So hunger right but the kid says to its mom hey I want a popsicle and so the mom goes to the freezer gets a popsicle takes it to the kid and the kids like no this is orange I don't want orange I want cherry so the mom goes back to the freezer and gets a cherry one but then the kids like no I don't want this cherry one I want the other cherry one right and so what the kids actually doing here is it's it, it, the mom is having to prove that she loves the kid through how much she's willing to put up, right? How, mu how much of an inconvenience she's letting the kid be. Mm -hmm. And so the biological need isn't what's fundamentally at work here. It's the demand for love, right? But, and here's where we transition into the desire. The demand for love is still linked in some way to a proof of love, to an object, right? Uh, to some specific thing that would, even though it's not primary, it would still satisfy a basic need. But when Lacan says desire is what happens when need is subtracted from demand, 
then you're you're in this whole other register altogether where you want stuff, but it has nothing to do with your biological imperatives. It it, it has nothing to do with that. It, it's it's a whole other order unto itself, and this is where desire arises for Lacan. Now again, there's many different ways he talks about the emergence of desire. This is one of the earlier ones, um, but it gives us a sense that yeah, desire is not tethered to biology or biological needs. It's two steps removed from that. Uh, and but but Lacan was basically trying to show how desire emerges out of need. And so we go back up to fundamental fantasy. Where are we? Okay. So this whole thing about desire emerging in this way is interesting and, and I wanted to touch on it because it is a theory of the emergence of desire. But I think the one that's more important is from seminar 11, which as we talk about it's arguably his most important seminar. And it's the whole process of what he calls separation. And this is much more relevant to fundamental fantasy as we'll come to see. So what is separation? Well, up until seminar seventeen or seminar eleven, I'm sorry, Lacan had talked about alienation, right? And we've already seen this. We didn't use the term, but in the imaginary, you are alienated, and there's a kind of fundamental ontological alienation for you to become an ego at all. It's not the kind of alienation Marx is talking about, where oh, we're alienated from the products of our labor or from our the very process of labor, right? It's not the forms of alienation that, for Marx, we need to undo, uh, we need to get out of, but uh, this alienation is part of our ontology. And we're Base reality. Say what? Uh, it's just base reality, right? Like, Well, it, it's part of our sense of self, right? Our, our yeah. ego, right? It's, it, and again, it's not that despite Lacan's criticisms of the ego psychologist, he's not saying, oh, we have to make human beings not have egos, right? right. It's not, that's not what he's saying. It's it, He knows that the ego is a fundamental part of human reality. It's not yeah. going anywhere. It just can't be the focus. And right. there's a way that analysis has to get beyond it to do any real work that's effective. But you are alienated at the core of your identity precisely because your mere image and not just that primary identification with your mere image but all the things that you identify with the bands you like the books you like uh the the movie stars that you wish you could be like all of these various things that you identify with are not you and so your identity who you are at the ego level is based on all these external things right but so therefore your your whole identity is based on alienation um, and yet it's not an alienation you can ever really get rid of. Um, you just have to recognize that alienation is core of, is at the core of human reality. And so that's imaginary alienation that's going on with the ego, but there's also symbolic alienation where, and I think, you know, for us with Heideggerian backgrounds, it helps to talk about Dossmann where once you're in language or once you're in the social order um you're never fully you right you're you're you you always have to be some kind of generic self 
you have to take on this generic protocol that you know there's the the way of doing what one does in society you have to do what one does in order to be in society at all and so you're alienated in this other that you are not but is also at the core of your existence like you can't get rid of dosmon you can't get rid of the big other you wouldn't be you right you are your position in society you are the signifiers that you identify with the values right you are, and all of this is largely embodied you're not even thinking about it at the egoic conscious level you just live it and so there's this double alienation one has to do with the ego and the imaginary the other has to do with the big other and the symbolic order but and, and what's interesting again lacan uses this term extimate right and the neologism that combines the word intimate uh, uh with uh the word exterior or external with intimate so what is most intimate to us is something external something outside us and this is part of the paradox of human subjectivity is you are the other you are these things that you are not and um so the, like the core of subjectivity is inhabited by an alien alterity whether it be the imago or the signifier well, you know, whether it be images of yourself or language or social positions um, or customs or laws or rules, right? They're they're essential. They're an essential core of who you are, and yet you aren't reducible to them, and they're not reducible to you. So, in that sense, they're extimate. I mean, I always feel like, in case you tied it into Heidegger, I always feel like Lacan is basically g doing the next step. You know, like. All of these other people tried to do the next step, uh, you know, Sartre and Merleau-Ponty and Levinas all tried to be Heidegger 2.0, but, in, you know, and they all kind of succeed in their own ways and, you know, Foucault even in, in his own, everyone kind of like takes that project from being in time division one off in, in its own direction. But but this, what the part I'm most interested in, this, this gets to the stuff I'm most interested in because... All of the three main categories that make up Dasein, the kind of being that we are, that humanity is, or that any kind of being that lives in temporality and, and has projects and, and, and a life with others, um, and any, any being in language, right, it has certain fundamental components that, 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 that you could say are the, the, the structural conditions for the the sense of self uh, or of the world or others that arises and and for for Heidegger that's going to be understanding discourse and mood and you know I kind of explain that in the big mood essay um, but and I'll explain it in my next essay a bit more in depth but right now um, the the main thing I'm trying to get at is that those three categories all three of them are existentials or existential categories. Each one of them is unlike in modern philosophy. In modern philosophy, there's always like a fundamental, like you have like the the base thing that everything else builds off of. These three things um, are are no, no one is prior to the others. All three of them are are equally original. And so um, the, these categories: understanding, discourse. Discourse is through language. Understanding is through knowledge and 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 through intellect and through. You know all of these other things, and then you've got you got mood, fundamental attunement to the world, or your fundamental uh, disposition within the world. Um, all three of those are being with. All three of those are being with, 
right? So where modern philosophy, you know, gets off and Anglo-Saxon philosophy kind of remains a lot of the time is this kind of idea that like, well, I can't be sure of anything else. All I know is that I exist, says Descartes using language, which is a thing that is necessarily being with. It doesn't make sense. Language doesn't make any sense to think that it, it, you know, you're enmeshed in not just language, but also the, the possibility of understanding that language, the, the, the possibility of using that language, of, of internalizing the rules of language and the symbolic order and the laws and the prohibitions and the norms, and, and then, and then there, your fundamental attunement within those conditions, your fundamental mood within those conditions, all of those things play off of each other to make us what we are. But then Lacan takes and goes like a, a layer deeper. So these are all still being with categories. That's kind of what the word estimate is perfect for getting at the the what, what what Heidegger was using for being with, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about uh, another way to you know I like to talk about it, right? If somebody thinks that they are truly who they are in and of themselves, to go back to you know the, the way we talk about the liberal concept of the ego, the libertarian concept of the ego, the capitalist. Um, all you have to do is use the thought experiment of a feral child, right? right. Who never got language? It shows you you don't end up with a human subject. Of course, there's uh, you know a member of our species there, but there's not a human being in the sense that we use the term. Mm -hmm. And it's precisely because of the lack of language that the, this human brain did not get language, did not get the big other installed in it uh, at, at the point in its life where it needed it in development to become a human subject. And so that, I mean, that kind of thought experiment helps to show how much you depend on becoming alienated in the big other to be a subject at all. And, you know, so alienation, again, is part of our, our ontological being, our essence, right? Even though the whole point of Lacan is that we are these lacking subjects, right? We're the subjects who lack our being because that's what objet petit a is. If I could get it, I could get that thing I'm missing, I would be whole. And not, again, not at the imaginary level, like at the level of the image, but at just at the level of human subjectivity. And that's precise, you know, so it's, it's this high idea that we only are desiring subjects so long as we are alienated and incomplete. Mm. And so this, this, this brings us, right, we've talked about alienation, but in Seminar 11, Lacan introduces the concept of separation. And separation has to do with the child's relation to the mother's lack. Now, Lacanians will, they have this word mother, right? But when they write it, the, the, the M is in parentheses, and then the O in the word mother is capitalized. So it's the mother yeah it, it's right the big other the, the the big other in the mother in the the empirical the primary caregiver and by the way side note we did this last time we're not going to do it again we, we, this is a this is a primary caregiver it, we're using this word this word loosely so yeah the mother yeah. is a function it's not a biological sex or the, you know the biological mother it's the the mother is the child's primary caregiver and the father is whoever steps in and separates the child from the mother, and that could be a biological woman. Yeah. So, again, these are these are social positions and not, uh, you know, mythological figures or biological types. Right.
So, um, so yeah, but separation also involves the production of objet petit a. So this is more relevant to where we're going with fundamental fantasy. And after this, we're going back to fundamental fantasy. So I'm going to use another quote from Sean Homer because I think this is really good. He says, as with the subject, the other is also lacking. So the baby starts to perceive the primary caregiver lacks something and that the baby isn't sufficient to satisfy that lack, to fill that void, right? There's something besides the baby that the mother, primary caregiver, desires. And Lacan will call this the imaginary phallus. And again, maybe we'll talk about, when we talk about sexuation, if we get there tonight, we can talk about the phallus. But cool. phallus does not mean penis. It's not, don't form, you know, an identification with those two terms. I, I think it would be better uh, to have a different term for what he's talking about. He's just referring to the lack in the mother. That you can tell the mother wants something, desires something besides the child. And it, you can tell, like, it's almost like intentionality in phenomenology. The, the baby can perceive the mother's intentionality is drifting other places, right? It's not staying focused on the child. And so the child's starting to, like, get some vague sense of, oh, what's the thing that mom wants that I don't, that I'm not, right? And so the, the baby perceives the lack in the other. So uh, Sean Homer continues. And I should say, this lack in the other, this is what makes the other barred, or lacking, or incomplete, right? <clears throat> the other is also a subject of desire. So he goes he goes on to say, There remains something essentially unfathomable in the desire of the other for the subject, the baby. What Lacan calls separation is the encounter with the lack in the other, and the want-to-be, more than merely lack. Uh, separation involves the coincidence or overlapping of two lacks. It's like, okay, I lack something and the mother lacks something and what I lack and what she lacks, they don't coincide, right? And so this is where there's, there's a separation between the mother-child unity, right? right. Um, so there's a lack in the subject and in the other. The interaction between these two lacks will determine the constitution of the subject. So exactly. And this is why the first few years of your life are the most formative years of your life. How you develop into the symbolic, how you integrate into how you are assimilated into that order in relation to like coping with these fundamental separations and breaks. Like that's going to be constitutive, it's going, which means it, it constructs, it builds that, that subjectivity. Right. So absolutely. I mean, that you know, even though Objet Petit A, right? The, Lacan said it was his greatest concept. If if Heidegger, if, think about different Heidegger or, or different philosophers. Though we think Deleuze is the philosopher of difference. Heidegger is the philosopher of being. Um, uh, Sartre's the philosopher of freedom. Right. I think it's fair to say Lacan, even though he wouldn't call himself a philosopher, let's call him a thinker. You know, Lacan's a thinker of lack. Because the phallus is a lack, and the desire of the other involves a lack, and objet petit a is a lack, and signifiers themselves, in isolation from other signifiers, have no signifieds. They have a lack. And so he's finding lack everywhere, and the, the, you know, the various lacks we encounter in, in childhood, 
the the ones we we pursue, the ones we identify, all of this uh, forms our particular subjectivity. And so I, I think it's it's best to think of him as this thinker of lack. Um, but Sean Homer goes on. He says separation therefore takes place at precisely the point that the subject can formulate the question, "What am I in the other's desire?" Right. This is where you're like you break away, and the other's desire has a kind of monstrous impenetrant uh, impenetrability about it, where you can't figure out what the other wants from you. Even if the other tells you what they want, it doesn't necessarily, it's not satisfying. Right, because if your parents tell you they want you to be a good kid at school and not hit the bully, they actually might secretly yeah. wish that you hit the bully, that kind of thing. I have used that example for it. I love that example. because I got that point, example from you, yeah. Yeah, the kid, the kid goes home, right? The kid's taught. Hey, you know, we don't believe in violence in this family. It's never right to punch. It's never right to hurt another person. And the kid is being bullied at school. And so the kid takes the nonviolent approach as the as the parents have dictated, right? He thinks he's going to satisfy their desire by not hitting back. And he goes home, he tells the parents about the bullying and what happened, and they go, "Oh, that's very good. We're very proud of you that you didn't hit back." And yet he can detect a gap a separation like I hear what you're saying (laughs) out of me but I can tell that you're disappointed so what Mm -hmm. do you really want from me right and so there's uh, it also works in in an inverted way right so say the kid says oh screw it I am gonna punch back right and so the kid goes home and he uh, the kids afraid he's gonna be punished because he didn't obey the law of the parents right the demand of the parents and yet once he tells them what happened they, they start saying, well, you know, we really do believe in nonviolence and it, it's wrong to solve your problems with violence, but we understand why you did what you did. And But despite what they're saying, he detects a certain joy in them that he beat up the bully. And so this is the split, right? Like, no matter what somebody tells you, what they want from you, you can't be sure of that because they themselves have an unconscious. Right. Like, I can't figure myself out let alone how can I possibly figure out somebody else's desire and because we're all split subjects and so this creates uh, anxiety right Um, yeah somebody just mentioned anxiety uh, legal and free yeah we're gonna get into anxiety in a minute Um, this is one of the causes of anxiety for Lacan is this uh, unfathomable uh, impenetrable enigma of the other's desire you're telling me you want this from me, but I can tell you want something else. But you can also get a sense like, I don't think you even know what you want from me, right? And uh, yet for a child, think about how much you're helpless. You can't take care of yourself as a human baby. Your whole life depends on the other desiring you, wanting to be there to take care of you, right? So it's like your whole biological reality necessitates being positioned properly in relation to the other's desire and so it's this like horrifying anxiety that you feel like oh if I don't satisfy the other's desire if I don't keep their intentionality fixated on me I'm going to die I'm not going to be okay and so when people tell you oh I don't care what others think of me it's bullshit I mean this goes to the very core of who we are is we're always caught up with the other's desire This is why Lacan says desire is the desire of the other. On the one hand, 
you desire to be desired by the other, but you also end up desiring what the other desires because you believe that's what's going to make them desire you, right? And so this this whole thing, like we care about what the other desires or what the other thinks to the core of our being. We never get rid of that. And anybody who says otherwise is like in a kind of bad faith or inauthenticity, right? It's not authentic to say, oh, I don't care what the other thinks. Yes, of course, there's times that there's certain people you don't really care what they think, but you always care about what some other thinks, right? It goes to the core of your being. Um, and so just to finish this quote up, right? So uh, he said, what am I in the other's desire? And can thus differentiate itself from the desire of the other, right? In pondering what the other desires, not knowing what the other desires, you can't actually identify with it and make it your own desire. So your desire is not identified with the other's desire. There's a split. And that's how your desire comes into being. Because you don't know what the other desire, you can't desire what the other desires because you don't know what it is. And so this whole like enigmatic, impenetrable aspect of the other uh, is, you know, part of where your desire originates and so he concludes while the desire of the other always exceeds or escapes the subject there never there nevertheless remains something that the subject can recover and thus sustain him or herself in being as a being of desire or a desiring subject that remainder is the objet petit a, the object cause of desire and again his point is there's desire is desiring something and every object of desire that it thinks is going to satisfy itself, it doesn't. And so there's this uh, elusive missing object that desire is always chasing. Um, and it never can get its hands on it. But nevertheless, this is what orients desire uh, at the most basic level is this objet petit off. And that's what causes you to desire. What like Think about cause of the object cause of desire. The object that causes you to desire. All of us can think about a hundred different objects of our desire. I want a new TV. I want this book. I want that. I want a new car, right? But the question is, what causes us to desire those, those particular objects of desire, right? And so for Lacan, he doesn't think it's very interesting, the specific objects we desire on whatever day. What is interesting is that cause of desire, right? Those traits or those characteristics that we have libidinally invested, right, unconsciously, we're not aware of this, that that we link to whatever is missing in our lives, that cause us. This is why people tend to have, they repeat relationship patterns. They, uh, people often tend to date the same person over and over again. Uh, there's certain traits, that uh, certain characteristics that we link we through our whole libidinal history, like our whole life is involved in this. But we come to associate certain features, certain traits with the missing object, objet petit a. And it's like, oh, well, you know, when we think we see something, you know, the unconscious registers it and it's like, oh, there's the missing object, right? But you get it and it's not because the missing object, is, there's no real original missing object. It's a virtual uh, effect of having to take on prohibition and language and custom. And so there is no real missing loss object to regain. Um, it's just a virtual effect of language. And so the point is, uh, okay, and so just we're almost back to fundamental fantasy. So I'll just say that 
Uh, separation also refers to the split subject, right? So the split subject, barred F in relation to uh, the little a, which is what we're working on with fantasy. However, the subject is this very split, this object relation, right? That's the key thing is when you see the barred S and the A, you have to go, that is me. Not just the barred S, but the missing A. I am my pursuit of this missing part of myself, right? <clears throat> to over, uh, okay, yeah, and so here's the thing though. If we were to overcome this loss, if we were to actually regain the lost object, which again is impossible, but just to make the point, it would destroy us. We would cease to be desiring human beings. We we would have no lack, and we would revert back to some kind of pre-linguistic infant, right? It mm -hmm. would destroy our very social reality and uh, sense of self. So the thing that you're pursuing your whole life, if you actually could get it, which you can't, it would be, it would be utter existential destruction. And so that's kind of the, the tragic aspect of the Lacanian subject, right? But, uh, okay, so now. We interrupt this conversation for a quick message from our sponsors. You may recognize this conversation from the past because it is actually a piece of a longer live stream. So what I've done is I've edited the conversations I had with Mikey down into smaller chunks and I will be releasing those serially until the launch of the Slavoj Zizek's For They Know Not What They Do course taught by Michael Downs and myself. I will be asking him the questions and hystericizing him along with a cohort of people who will be joining us live and in the forums as we do a close reading of what Slavoj Zizek claims is his most important theoretical work, more important than Sublime Objective Ideology by far. He said that if you don't have anything to say about for they know not what they do then keep silent when it comes to sublime objective ideology but we don't just do close thorough hardcore readings we also have some more introductory stuff and so if you go to theory-underground.com forward slash events then you'll be able to see the dates of all of the upcoming events you see that the idea of the university taught by myself brian and and couple of educators who are very close to me and uh, we wanted to focus on Carl Jasper's short work the idea of university as a way to start the year but it's also a way for theory underground to get off on the right track the January 25th is the professional managerial class consciousness course that I'm co-teaching with Elton LK of the working class intelligentsia podcast and then in February on to the 25th of February launches GGX4 they know not what they do Mikey has spent two decades getting himself to the point where he feels confident enough to teach this book. And I think that that humility and effort that he's put in is something that we can all learn from. I mean, come on. He's like our own homegrown Zizek. He's like our own like national treasure. I think that we really ought to uplift him and give credit where it's due, not just take him for granted and act like, you know, we don't need to. So that's a part of the reason actually why I really appreciate Brian Becker from Singularity and Sublimity podcast. He's done a lot of amazing teaching work himself. And then the last thing, I'm doing a countrywide tour this year. I will be on the East Coast. I will be on the West Coast. And I will be everywhere in between. So if you want me to come to your town or city, email me. It's down below. If you want to volunteer, be a part of the street team, host or guide while we're there, let me know. I hope to be in a city near you sometime this year, and I hope that you'll take one of my classes. Thanks.